0: You are now listening to Bookish, The Canon Continues, the podcast that's dismantling the sacred-secular divide with your host, Michelle Collins. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bookish, The Canon Continues. I am your host, Michelle Collins. And as the tagline says, we are here to bridge the sacred and secular divide, book by book. Um, It's just me today. You're stuck with just me, which means there's going to be a lot of my opinions, and I'm sorry, you're just stuck with it. That's the way it's going to go. And I picked a topic, you know, that I can, I can be pretty mouthy about. And I've already told my producer I'm feeling pretty sassy this morning, so we'll see how this goes. Um, and there's nobody to argue with me, so it doesn't really matter. I get to do whatever I want. Um, I mean, quite honestly, Ralph can type at me in large letters, but that's about it. So, you know, here we go. Um, so of course, the the premise of the podcast is books. And because I'm a huge reader, I mean, I can tell you and anybody in my life can tell you that at any given time, you will see me with a book in my hand. And they're all different kinds of books. Often they are scholarly because I'm working on a doctorate, excuse me, but often they are reading for understanding or enjoyment um, because books are just the best thing in the world. So the book that I chose here, and it was actually suggested by a fellow choir podcaster, Keith Giles, Um, the book is called What's With Paul and Women? Unlocking the Cultural Background to 1 Timothy 2. So I'm sure you're very confused as to what the subject matter is now, right? No, of course not. Uh, Anyway, the book, I wanted to read it, of course, as a woman. I'm always interested in understanding a better biblical background as to who I'm supposed to be. No, I'm kidding. No, <laughs> that's a joke. I, I am interested in the, in the biblical scholarship, um, but I am in no way okay with being told how I'm supposed to be. I spent too many years trying to do that. Anyway, this subject matter has been very, very big lately. I'm sure many of you know where I'm going to go with this. Um, but just recently it, at a conference, um, a very well-known pastor, John MacArthur, uh, was on a panel on on a stage, and they were playing a word association game, apparently. I don't know if that's how they defined it, but that's what it seemed like to me. And they were given uh, one or two words, and they were asked for a very pithy, quick response to these words. So as such, um, John MacArthur even said, as they were getting started, he said, I feel like I'm being set up. And and everybody laughed and thought that was funny. And uh, although I'm sure he felt very confident in what he was going to be discussing, um, regardless of the subject matter, anyway, the words that were given to him were Beth Moore. Now, many of you will know who Beth Moore is. Um, she is an evangelical i don't know if we're going to call her pastor or not because that might get me in trouble, but she is definitely involved in the Southern Baptist Conference. Um, she's written many, many books i've been involved in many women's Bible studies that sur- that were uh, that were in reference to one of her books that she had written or her Bible studies. Um, I don't know of very many men's Bible studies that have ever used Beth Moore's books. Now that I think about it, that's strange. Hmm, maybe not. Anyway, John MacArthur's response uh, to the words Beth Moore were simple. He said, go home. Now, it's very dismissive, immediately very dismissive, and, of course, caused quite a big reaction, both pro and con. Um, social media lit up that that clip of him saying that was literally everywhere and I, I really I honestly didn't say anything about it for the longest time because I thought it was laughable. I mean, first of all, I couldn't give two shits in all honesty what John MacArthur thinks about women. I'm, I I don't have any respect for him as a pastor anyway. and the reason I say that, and of course I'll probably get in trouble for that, is you only have to look at how he runs his little empire and the many problems that he has with his university to know that this is a man that's not too interested in other people's opinions. He's only interested in his own. That's my personal opinion. Yes, that's going to get me in some trouble. But anyway, going back to the subject matter, I'm going to say that I thought his response was laughable, but I am going to go further and say that there were several other people on the, on the, um, on the stage with him. One of the other men that were up there because there were only men up there, um, was a, another pastor, and I'm sorry, I don't recall his name right now. And I'm sure if I looked here real quick, I could find it. But anyway, when he was asked, he expounded upon John MacArthur's response of "Go home with she's a narcissist." Well, now those are fighting words. Um, as somebody who is working on a doctorate in psychology, I have a real big problem with anybody that pulls out psychological words and assigns them to somebody when they've never even sat down and talked with the person. First of all. I'm going to assume and I'm going to hope anyway that this gentleman at least has a background in some psychology class to be able to throw that word around first and foremost. Um, In the off chance that he doesn't, he shouldn't be making that comment at all anyway. If he does, I'm going to challenge his professionalism and say, sir, have you sat down with her and had any kind of conversation in which to diagnose her with a very diagnosable by stringent standards disorder? And if not, stop using words like that. It's ridiculous. Um, but anyway, back to the subject matter. Uh, so they went on to have more of a discussion, even though it was supposed to be a one or two word response, they went on to have more of a discussion. Um, John MacArthur elaborated on his go home statement with, there is no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period paragraph, end of discussion. He later added that just because you have the skill to sell jewelry on TV sales channels doesn't mean you should be preaching. That, honestly, I mean, how arrogant does that sound? That's ridiculous. Then he went on and denounced the Me Too movement. That's another one that's going to get me fired up. Arguing that it is culture reclaiming ground in the church. And then this this is... The quote that I want to highlight because honestly, I I think it really comes down to the heart of the matter. This is not so much a biblical issue as it is, I feel threatened issue. This is a quote The primary effort in feminism is not equality. They don't want equality, he argued. That's why 99% of plumbers are men. They don't want equal power to be a plumber. They want to be senators, preachers, congressmen, and president. The power structure in a university. They want power, not equality, and this is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church and overturn what is clearly scriptural. So I think this is feminism gone to church. This is why we cannot let culture exegete the Bible. So that's John MacArthur's standpoint on women as ministry leaders, pastors, uh, and apparently Women being in any kind of position that has an element of power associated with it. So while he may claim that this is simply just about biblical interpretation and um, the status quo within Christian households, he honestly and very obviously has a problem with women attaining any kind of power in culture, period. That's concerning because that actually shows me that he allows culture, of course, to influence him as well. He wants a male-dominated culture. So you can see why I got a little fired up, a little agitated, um, and I don't like this word, but quite honestly, triggered. Um, Religious idealism in the church has centered around this idea that we must live according to the Bible. And yet, Hundreds and hundreds of scholars over a lot of years have not been able to agree on what the Bible actually says. I mean, you have your conservative scholars, you have your liberal scholars, you have all of these people that are involved in a conversation, um, which by the way, most are men, and they are determining what you as the parishioner, as the person that sits in the pew and listens to the pastor every week, they are determining what the Bible says. There are even churches that go so far as to tell you, you shouldn't be reading the Bible for yourself, that only your pastor should be interpreting for you. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a recipe for cultish behavior and is simply ridiculous because the fact of the matter is women are every bit as smart, every bit as talented and gifted as a man. As a matter of fact, we were made by the same God. I'm not sure if anybody remembers that or not, but we were actually you know, created by the same Creator that brought about a man. So you're going to have to take uh, issue with him if you find fault with women or think that we're less than, because I don't believe that. So anyway, of course, now all I've done so far is just pontificate on my own personal uh, triggers, my own personal opinions. So let's go to the book. Um, I thought this book was really interesting. Uh, Not even a very big book, But incredibly full of information surrounding the the topic of women and scripture in scripture and their role that they played within ministry in the time of Jesus. Because that's another thing we have to take into consideration here. We have to be contextually and historically cognizant of what we're talking about. And if we're not, we're doing a disservice not only to ourselves, but to those with whom we speak about the subject because there was a very real context and cultural context involved in what was written down, which, by the way, was written down quite a bit after the fact, and I think we forget about that. Um, I know I have a couple of friends on a few other podcasts that don't have a uh, that that are very open and honest in their opinion of the canon. Um, I tend to agree with them. I have a tendency to think that the canon, of course, was put together in a council of men. Who got to decide? Who made it? Who didn't? Um, there was a lot of arguing in that, even, and quite a few of the books that people are very, very attached to in our current canon almost didn't make the cut. So think about that for a moment. Um, not only that, then we have the the discussion uh, that has been prevalent with a lot of biblical scholars as to what is actually included in in the canon and the veracity of it. In other words. We have a couple of books in the Bible that actually are considered written by Paul, but that many scholars feel are not Pauline scriptures, all right? So we have a lot of issue with the canon overall, and because that's not what this podcast is about, this specific topic is about, I won't go into all of those things, but those are just a couple of the things. So as we're talking about how we approach the scripture, I think we have to do so from from a looser position, or, or at least a more studied position. Um, and you know, I had this conversation with my husband last night, I'm going to tell you his eyes kind of glazed over because when I get going, he kind of goes, okay, this is going to last for a while. But we actually were talking about the fact that there is so much in this book that shows the value of women in scripture that I don't know how anybody can make the comment that women should just go home and that they have no value to bring into the place of ministry. Or leadership within the church, um, women throughout the history of the scriptures provided so much leadership. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is Deborah. Um, this was a woman who was married. Her husband was a businessman in in, in their in their um, in their society there, and she actually still ran. She was a judge. I mean, for goodness' sakes, to say that she wasn't a a biblical wife would be hilarious. So anyway, I'm going to go into the book now. Again, the name of the book is What's with Paul and Women. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, I think that he provides, even in the in the forward, there's a couple different examples that I wanted to highlight because I thought they were so interesting with regard to women and their contribution um, into the ministry and into the church. And he talks about um, some of the ways that women have been removed from any kind of authority. Um, He talks about, and this was in 1987, this blew me away, because that's not that long ago. I mean, I know some of you that are listening think that's a long time ago, but it's not. Um, In 1987, the assembly pastored by Nancy, and I'm going to mess up her last name, Sehested was put out of the Memphis Association of the Southern Baptist Churches, and 1 Timothy 2.12 was a key component used in justifying this decision. In 2004, Sherry Cloda, a theology professor, was let go from her position at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, where she taught Hebrew. By the way, she went to school there and graduated from that program, and then went back to teach Hebrew, but then she was removed based on this one verse in the Bible. The seminary leadership based on first Timothy concluded that a woman should not be teaching men. I mean, so women are to teach children until they reach a certain age. Once they reach a certain age, those boys are not allowed to be taught by women anymore. That's the thinking. Um, That kind of blows me away because when you think about it, the younger a child is, the more they soak up. So you're okay with a woman teaching a child at their most vulnerable ages, but as they get older... You're not, you're not okay with it. That just kind of throws me a little bit. Um, anyway, so there's a couple different places. And, and so I, you know, I kind of tend to hope, hope that society is changing, that, that things are becoming, I don't know, less patriarchal. But then again, I always run across these things that prove to me it's not. Um, I like to believe, and because I live in California and I know that we're a lot more liberal here, uh, I tend to find most churches here don't have as much of a problem with women being involved in ministry. But then I forget that there's the rest of the United States and that it's still very, very prevalent in a lot of places that women are to be silent in the church. And they don't get a say so. Their job is to take care of the home and the children. Um, they and this. And this does bleed into the home life because we want to have a biblical marriage. And so women have to be silent at home. The man is the head of the household. He makes the decisions. Except that when you really get into numbers and statistics and start looking at who handles the finances in the majority of households in in America, it's the women. They're making the decisions, but nobody talks about that because it's not biblical. And I'm using air quotes when I say biblical there, just in case anybody is concerned. Um, so let's talk about Jesus for a minute, because quite honestly, I know Paul gets all the credit for this one verse, um, but let's talk a little bit about Jesus, because isn't he the one we're supposed to be following first and foremost? And I'm going to come back to Paul, but Jesus had a lot of female support around him. I mean, at the risk of, of sounding like Jamal, uh, Mary Magdalene, hello. I mean, she was a pretty prominent figure in the life of Jesus. Um, Quite honestly, and I said this to somebody the other day, it's actually biblical that the majority of the support for Jesus's ministry came from women. They were the ones that were financially supporting his ministry. Judas might've been counting the money. They were providing the money, okay? So I don't think Jesus had a problem with women being around him. Uh, As a matter of fact, Uh, the women's testimony was disavowed in a court of law in that time. And in that context, that cultural context, yet a woman was the first witness to proclaim the resurrection. Now, why would that have been okay with Jesus? If women were supposed to be silent, um, even Paul, as we get into later into the scriptures, his letter to the Romans was delivered by Phoebe. She was a trusted carrier for Paul. He absolutely had no, women, no problem with women being involved in what he did. There are multiple examples all through scripture. So first of all, in, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, First Timothy, the verse in First Timothy, actually there's a lot of scholars that take issue with the fact that that book was even written by Paul. Um, uh, it was common at that time for people to write in the name of another well-known person it helped them to garner support. It helped them to garner a following or, you know, people that would listen to them. And hopefully, I'm hoping anyway, that those people actually had an association. Like, so if Paul didn't write that letter, whoever did, I'm hoping that whoever did actually, you know, was an adherent to Paul. Um, but you can hear in the reading a difference in in how it comes across, and that's been one of the points of many scholars over the years, is that there there are textual contextual voice differences in some of the scripture that's written and associated to Paul. Um, so one of the first thing the book um, that I'm covering, as I said, "What's with Paul and Women," is written by John Zenz, uh, who by the way is a choir author. And so one of the first things he talks about is the wise of of that of that scripture being used. And he contends with the fact that there's some mistranslation there. Um, I am not a Greek scholar at all, (laughs) so I don't claim to be. I have taken some foundational beginning uh, Hebrew, but not enough to be conversational or to really, really get in depth into the scripture. And I will contend and say that I feel that that is probably the majority of people preaching right now have not had a background in that either, which is a part of our problem. so anyway, his con- John Zenn's contention is that this epistle is not pastoral so much because Timothy was not considered a pastor. He was actually an itinerant apostolic assistant to Paul, and he had a, a certain purpose. So if I'm going to go into the book and I'm going to read you a little bit here of what he wrote on this, <clears throat> he actually says, 1 Timothy is not a universal church manual for a pastor. It's a mandate for an apostolic assistant to deal with serious issues involving false teaching in Ephesus. And unfortunately, some women had apparently become involved in this problem. Well, that's not unusual because if you know your history of Ephesus, you know about Artemis and you know about the temple there and you know that the priests in that temple were all women. So again, I'm going to come back to this, but there's a lot of context here that gets left out of our scripture, out of our canon that actually has a very viable effect on what's being talked about in our canon. Um, we're just not getting all the background that they had. Um, so actually Timothy was left there with a purpose. His purpose was that he had been left to combat some false teachers, um, who had based the law on engendering strife and causing many to capitulate the false teaching. Uh, that's a lot of big words. Um, Basically, Timothy was left to correct the false teachers who were confusing people uh, with. from what Paul had taught them. They were mixing back in a lot of the context of their own religious ideals there in the Artemis culture. So again, we already have a problem with the fact that this has been considered a pastoral epistle and Timothy was not a pastor. Again, he was an apostolic assistant itinerant, no, matter, no less. That means he traveled around. He wasn't even there all the time. Um, and then here's another point that, that he makes in the book. And I don't have it in this section, but I'm going to bring it up now because it makes sense to me. Paul spent roughly three years in Ephesus. In all of that time, we have no writings that indicate he had a problem with women there. It was only when he left that apparently this letter was written back to them because problems started to come in. So that would indicate in a culture where women were very prominent that Paul had no issue there until after he left, and the teaching began to be changed. It wasn't a matter of who was teaching it, it was the teaching itself. And as I mentioned already, the temple there was the main it was the main thing for their for their for their culture, for their jobs, um, it was the marketplace, it was everything, but the temple was dedicated to Artemis. Um, a female God, and I'm using air quotes again, in case anybody gets upset. Um, As I mentioned, all the priests that worked in the temple of Artemis were women. So it's not hard to imagine that some of that teaching came back into the church that was founded at Ephesus and that this was what Paul was writing about. He was saying, look, you've got some teaching coming back in that needs to be corrected. These are false teachers. So again, I'm going to say that in the context of this book and in my reading of it and in searching back through the culture of the time, I think Paul is speaking more to the, the teaching itself, not the teacher. And so I think we need to keep that in, in, um, in mind as we're talking about all of this. Um, John Zenz goes on in the book to talk about modesty and prayer And he talks about the culture of Artemis versus the Christians, as I was just saying. Um, If you get into another book written by Paul, 1 Corinthians, he actually gives instructions for both men and women when they prophesy. There's no contention there that women should not be prophesying. It's only that they have a way that they're supposed to be doing it when they do. And so that's a very interesting premise to me because... All throughout uh, the scripture and in the canon, we find that there are many admonitions given to both men and women. So, to me, common sense would indicate that that means we are going to have women that are doing these things; that they're not being prohibited. Um, they're just being given the same instruction as men as to how to do these things. So, I think that's a very important thing to. To remember as we're reading through there. And we can find a couple of different things um, in, this, in this section on modesty and prayer. I'm going to read this small section here. The instruction parallels 1 Corinthians, as I just mentioned, in the sense that Paul assumes that both men and women will be praying and prophesying in the gatherings of the saints. As renowned scholar William M. Ramsey put it, it was customary, for any of the brethren to speak in the assembled congregation as the Spirit moved them, both men and women. Well, it doesn't take much imagination to to say, well, they must have been sitting in the same room. I've heard that context before. Oh, they were separated in different rooms. Mm, it doesn't say that. It So both men and women are receiving the instruction for when they pray or prophesy which means that women were in the presence of men when they were praying or prophesying so they're not asking to be silent then and again first corinthians comes from paul so i'm not sure that we can make the uh the argument even there that he's saying women have to be silent again this contention comes back and rests on on the back of a single verse and i think there's one other that's it. We're not even talking about the, the overall general take of scripture, which we have to take into consideration because it was written over such a long period of time by so many different authors. We have to be cognizant of the fact that scripture as a whole needs to speak to the same direction, or maybe we have people with different opinions speaking. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Um, so now let's go into quietness. Learning and submission. I'm going to tell you, as a woman, these are some triggering words, right? Submission, women, we've all been triggered by that word. And of course, um, I've heard over and over in my younger years growing up in the church that I was to be submissive. And I did try. I think I've shared that before. I tried. I I watched the women in church that were so, you know, submissive and quiet. And look, my voice just got quieter even saying that. Um, But honestly, I did. I watched them because I thought, oh, that's how I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be soft-spoken. I'm supposed to be merciful and loving and giving. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that those are attributes that are often associated with just women. Like we're supposed to be what? The gentler sex, right? We're supposed to be um, the helpmate. We're supposed to be all these things. And I tried for so long. And in all honesty, I have to tell you, I couldn't pull it off. I'm not built that way. I am mouthy. I am sassy. I'm opinionated. I'm loud. I'm aggressive. I'm all of these things that are generally associated with more of the male perspective. And so you can understand, I'm sure, the confusion for me trying to be a good Christian woman and wife and yet being so unable to control my mouth. Um, And then the constant guilt and shame that comes along with that. Like you're not a very good Christian. You're not a very good wife. You are an embarrassment to your husband. I mean, these are all things that went through my head over the years because of my personality. Um, So as a woman, we are inhibited from being who we are because we're supposed to fulfill some prescribed role that came out of cultural context and patriarchy. And quite honestly, I think. I I can't do it. I I recognized a while ago, I can't do it. So I just don't anymore. I am who I am. You get to take me as I am or, or you don't, that's the way it goes. So let's get into this quietness, learning and submission. So when we go into this in the book, um, I, I, you know, I read this kind of flinching like, oh boy, I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to go on this because I might get really upset about it. Um, but I honestly was really, um, Really happy to read it. I mean, it, it helped me understand this a lot more. Um, so I'm just gonna. So First Timothy two eleven. Let's read that. It says, "Let a woman learn in quietness in all submission." So he goes into the traditional view of what that means. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna pronounce this word correctly. I don't know if I am or not. Nobody's here to correct me. So the word hes- hesusia in many translations has been rendered as silence. And many church leaders have taken this to mean that all women are not to speak in church missin- in church meetings. All submission is taken to mean that females are to be passive receivers, not active participants. Again, how I was taught to believe, how I thought I was supposed to behave in church falls into that very traditional view. So he adds a corrective to this. Again, I'm going to say this word. I'm not going to say it well. Hes hesit <laughs> Okay. The word I said a minute ago Means quietness, not silence. I'm going to spell the word so you guys can look it up if you want. It's H E S U C H I A. Anybody that can pronounce it better, send me a recording of it. I'll be happy to hear it. So it means quietness, not silence. Okay. So he goes on further and he says, 1 Timothy 2:2, the stated goal is for all believers to live a quiet life. Okay. A quiet life. All believers. So if we were to take this as silence, that means men are supposed to shut up too. Um, But that's not what it means. It means that we are supposed to live in quietness. In other words, in calmness without strife. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul instructs the brethren again, strive eagerly to be quiet, to do your own business and work with your own hands. So the apostle is telling those who believe, telling those believers who are not working to work with quietness and to eat their own bread. Okay. So since quietness is to be a quality of all the saints, if Paul's mentioning that women need to be learning in quietness, wouldn't that imply that there's some special circumstance that required this instruction? Yeah, it would. That's common sense. Um, it, would this not also imply that it would be a serious mistake to create a universal prohibition from what is clearly directed to a specific problem. See, that's where the crux of this comes in. We have taken the Bible as a whole and equated it to ourselves when it wasn't written to us. We have taken the canon and said, every word in it is without error and is directed specifically to me. I lived that way for a long time. I would literally read the Bible and try to figure out what this verse meant to me personally. It wasn't written to me. And so, yes, there's wisdom that we can learn to live our lives from in this, but there is in no way a directive that is universal in its scope in this verse. This is specifically directed to a certain place at a certain time in a certain culture. Right. So we're not talking about silence here. We're talking about quietness, demureness. We are talking about learning to live without strife. And again, that is directed to all believers. Okay. So I thought that was pretty interesting as it pertains to that. And of course, because women have been told to submit for so long, that is of course going to be a big sigh of relief. So uh, he asked this question I thought was very interesting because I said the same thing even before I got to this part this is his his comment. I'm compelled to ask, isn't using scripture like this exactly how cults take verses out of context to build false teachings upon them? The answer is yes, that's how they do it. So scripture must be viewed and considered as a whole and within context, which I've said probably 10 times already. Um, using any single scripture to cancel out the combined impact of many scriptures is, to say it in the kindest way possible, not a safe way to handle God's word. So anybody can literally open the Bible, blindly point to a verse and make a teaching on it. That does not mean that that teaching is in in the flow of scripture as a whole. And that's the important thing he's saying. So, and he goes on to make my point about biblical languages. Readers who do not know the original biblical languages assume that an English translation reproduces what the Bible really says. I, I, don't know, I don't know about you, but I, I'm positive many of you have had this experience, maybe in person or in some written format or whatever. Somebody holding up a Bible and saying, Well, I can read. And it says it right here. This is what it says. Except they fail to recognize that what they're reading is actually a translation, it's not the original language. And even further, they're reading it through the lens of what they have been taught. And even further, they're reading it through the lens of their own experience. This colors everything that you know, which is why it is so difficult to be objective in reading the word. It's so difficult to take yourself out of the process and say, what is this really saying? Not, do, not what do I think it says or what I've been taught it says, but what is actually being say, said here? That's very difficult to do. And I, and I, I do understand that. And, and so, yes, of course, we are going to err on the side of eisegesis versus exegesis. Um, And that is often what you're finding in the pulpits on Sunday mornings. Eisegesis. Look that up if you don't know what it means. Um, Again, in all submission, we are taught that submission is to be an attribute of all the believers, not just the sisters. It's not just us girls. We're not supposed to just be the only ones submitting. As a matter of fact, Ephesians 5.21 says Christians are to mutually submit to one another out of fear of Christ, right? Uh, James actually talks about it too. We're all supposed to submit to the Lord. First uh, Peter, all of you be subject one to another. This is not a one-way street. This is not, you know, have you guys seen that? Uh, there's a, I don't know if it's a meme, it's a drawing where it's this the large umbrella and, and that's Jesus. And then there's a smaller umbrella under it. That's the husband. And then there's the smallest umbrella under it. That's the wife. Right. So that kind of leads you to this one way direction. Scripture is clear that we're supposed to be submitting to one another. Each of us brings a special talent or gift um, to the table and is valuable uh, within the kingdom. And so, yes, we should be submitting to one another. So you cannot say that women are the only ones to submit and use that one verse and then admittedly ignore the rest of scripture that says we are to submit to one another and that all people are to be silent, not silent, quiet. Right. All right. So that's all I'm going to say on that, because honestly, I'm, that says it pretty well. Um, so now let's talk about a little bit about mistreatment of women. Eh, I know that's going to be a dicey subject for some people, but he's talking here about post-apostolic mistreatment of women. Um, and he kind of brings in the subject of dualism, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, so he says, there is, however, a huge chasm between what Paul like, likely had in mind With those words that were subsequently misappropriated and merged into the mind-body dualism of classical Greek philosophy by the early church fathers, in order to elevate their own authority while utterly suppressing women in home and church. So he's talking about the fact that we're seeing two different roles here. You know, the Bible in another uh, another place goes on to say that you know there is no Greek or I'm sorry, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no male or female, right? That we're all one in Christ. So, but what's happened here is that we're seeing dualisms uh, come back in. that, That Well, there's male headship and then there's female submission, right? And that the woman is supposed to submit to her husband, but Christ's purpose is not to silence his people, but to see all the gifts that he's given to the bride. And by the way, the bride is all of us, men and women. Which, you know, is kind of funny because I think back, I had a pastor that was so uncomfortable with being called the bride of Christ. It really offended him. Um, and and he would always kind of make a joke about it after he said it, as though he had to, you know, re-eval- his reevaluate his manliness after being called the bride of Christ. I always thought that was kind of um humorous <laughs> because <laughs> it's just so silly to get tied up into all these terms. But anyway, whatever. Um so he goes on here further to talk about how going back to the very beginning of our canon we are actually taught that women are actually assimilated into the very definition of sin, right? There's Adam and Eve, Eve takes the apple, she convinces Adam to eat it, so she's the one that sinned. She's the one that's responsible for sin. And so we have created this dualistic this dualistic idea that women are sinful. They're only saved through their husband, through Christ. And as such, um, they are forever tainted. They are forever less than. And I kind of laugh at that too, because my obvious question to that is, okay, Eve took the apple and she convinced Adam to eat it. How weak-minded was Adam? And this is who God wanted to put in charge? The guy that didn't know how to say no? To a woman? Okay. Anyway, that's my own personal, see, this is what happens when I'm sitting here by myself doing this. I start, you know, rabbit trailing out in my head and making fun of things that probably shouldn't make fun, of, but whatever. Um, anyway, he talks about women as the definition of sin. And I think I just said that, but basically he goes back to saying, look, um, the woman is responsible for sin coming into the world. And as such, she's forever cursed. Um, flowing from this, female sexuality came to be viewed as responsible for the fall of creation and the descent of man's soul into perdition. That's an ugly word right there. Um, viewing women with disdain as the conduits for sin led of necessity to their subordination to males. Since femaleness was equated with the inferior body, it followed that women must naturally live in submission to man in hierarchical fashion even as the body must be subject to the spirit. So see, again, we're back to dualism. We're separating out things. Um, so I have a big note here in this one area, and I just wrote the word wow in great big letters. So I'm going to read this section to you because it, 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 honestly, I was speechless for a little bit. And most people that know me know I'm not speechless. Um, this degradation of females led not a few theologians to question whether women as entities separate from men were in God's image. Further, since women were seen as lower beings, husbands were granted the right to correct or chastise their wives. This gave religious and legal sanction for the absolute control of the male mind over the female body in the form of physical violence. Thus, a perverted theology led to the church's sanctioning of wife beating. I think that's where I wrote, wow, and couldn't speak for a few minutes. Are you freaking kidding me? The Council of Toledo in A.D. 400 decreed that clergy had the right to beat their wives more severely than ordinary fellows. A husband is bound to chastise his wife moderately unless he be a clergy, in which case he may chastise her harder. A later passage states that if wives of clergy transgress their husband's commands, they may beat them, keep them bound in their house, and force them to fast, but not unto death. I mean, let's not get crazy, gentlemen. You're allowed to beat the hell out of your wife, but she still has to be able to cook dinner. I mean, let's get real. We can't be affecting the normal the normal flow of the household. She, If she can do it all bruised and battered, it's okay. And let's face it, she was asking for it. You see why this shit makes me so mad. I mean, this is absolute crap. And, and again, and I'm going to go off script here a little bit um, from the book. Because I think this plays a direct correlation into some of the societal issues that we have even now, not to mention years ago, it was even more prevalent then. We have a society that does see women as secondary citizens. And because of that, that flows into any kind of, um, legal situation, uh, criminal situation, um, How women are treated in the workplace, in the business environment. And I'm a businesswoman. I've owned my own business for 20 years. Trust me, I have to work my ass off to be taken as seriously as a man in the same in the same genre of work. And that's accounting for me. Um, and I know a lot of women that have said the same thing. They have the same education, sometimes even better education. I have quite a bit more education than a lot of the people I work with, and yet I still have to more than explain myself. Because I'm a woman, they almost always err over to uh, to a man's perspective. So, but going back to this violence thing, honestly, that is sickening. And the one thing that stands out in my mind, um, not very long ago, there was a crime committed here in California, was a Stanford student who raped a woman at a party, took her out back in an alley behind a dumpster, and he raped her. Um, Horrific detail was involved in this. And he was arrested. Uh, He was put on trial. His father came out and defended him, which of course you would expect a father to do. However, his father spoke of this event as 20 minutes of fun. He's going to have to pay the rest of his life for 20 minutes of fun. Who was having fun? It wasn't her. She's laying on the ground behind a dumpster with pine needles in her. And I'm sorry, that's graphic, but that's what the, the, the detail of it came out was she was brutalized. And yet all anybody could ask was, well, what was she wearing when she went to the party? Well, did she drink? Well, you know, and then it goes to trial. This kid is given three months because the judge said, well, we don't want to affect his life. You know, we don't, we don't want to, you know, negatively affect his life, his entire life. What about hers? My contention is this is a direct correlation when we have the religious institutions of the world, and not just Christianity, a lot of different religions. but I'll speak to Christianity because that's my tradition. When you have a religious idealism that comes in and says, this is acceptable behavior, it bleeds into the culture, the very culture that John McCarthy, MacArthur, I'm sorry, is saying we shouldn't be adhering to, but it's having a direct effect it's having a negative effect. All right. So that's my sidebar because that really pisses me off. And I, again, reading this section could not believe that this was actually, or this was, this was uh, condoned. This was encouraged. Control your women. All right. So all I'm going to say is, um, I know my husband listens to these podcasts not that I think you would ever have those ideas, honey, but you better not ever have those ideas because that ain't going over. Um, and he knows that anyway. As I said, he's already dealt with my mouthy my mouthy self all these years. So, um, so again, this is bleeding into the secular. This is bleeding into the ideas of sexual assault, um, how women are treated in general. And so there's a very real damage that is being done in this mindset of women being submissive. And it has to be spoken to. It has to be addressed. It has to be seen correctly in scripture if we're going to make any any strides towards the better treatment of women. And, and I'm not going to say that hasn't happened. There are a lot of church denominations now that are are ordaining women. Um, I'm ordained. So there there's a lot of good that is happening out there. Unfortunately, there's still lots of little pockets of bad. So I'm going to get back on script here because honestly I want to finish this book up and I know I'm running short on time. So going back to the idea of traditional versus corrective views, I want to go to this one section. He's talking about he he talks um he he offers us the traditional view and then the corrective view as I'd already stated. Um So here's another one. Is Paul concerned about women teaching? So the traditional view of 1 Timothy 2.12 is used as an always binding command by Paul that women are not to teach men, which if done would wrongfully usurp male authority. Instead of teaching, women are to be and remain in silence, right? So again, it's an overarching theme. We're going right back to it every time. So this is the corrective. First, it must be pointed out that there is no command or imperative from Paul in this text. The word in the King James Version I suffer not a woman can certainly sound like a command in English, but it isn't so in the original Greek text. Uh Uh-oh, those original languages again. Instead, it is a simple present tense. I am not now permitting a woman. So again, we're coming back to a very specific situation in which Paul is speaking into. Um, And I had mentioned this earlier that that Paul had already spent three years there. So for him to come back and say this now means he had to be speaking to something specific. Um, Again, I am not now permitting a woman to teach. Well, wouldn't he have been saying that all along unless he was speaking to something specific? I think he would have. Um, And then he goes into a section where he's talking about this idea of first, which I think is funny. Um, We have a tendency to believe that if something came first, that it seems to indicate some kind of headship, right? So first there was Adam, then there was Eve. So obviously he's in charge. She's subservient too. Well, the problem with that is that the animals actually came first. So wait a minute. Does that mean they're in charge? Anyway, I digress. I also want to bring up an example and A lot of the people that deal in technology will understand what I'm talking about here. And most people will understand it. Honestly, we've all heard the terms. Anytime something new technology wise is released, they release a beta version, correct? That's the version that you send out there to let people use and try and to figure out what's wrong with it, which you then correct, fix, and release the next version. So first does not necessarily mean best and I'm not saying that Adam was flawed and that Eve was the better version. Well, maybe I'm saying that. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They were both created by God. And it was the combination of the two that gave us the image of God. And I think we forget that. It's not one or the other. It's both. That's why we have to stop getting so upset about women with male attributes and males with female attributes. Literally, all of those attributes make us the image of God. We have just stop separating them and getting into this dualistic mindset. Okay. Again, I keep running off. I'm sorry. If there is a divine law that women teaching men is sinful, then there can be no exceptions, but there is no concern in this regard expressed in scripture. And there are clearly cases where women taught men, right? So in Romans, Paul is lifting, listing some gifts and he mentions prophesying and teaching. And I said this earlier, there's no gender restriction here both the men and the women were involved in those activities. So one would think that this would be mentioned again here, if that were a problem. Um, So I'm I'm getting close to my time. So I want to kind of wrap it up. I I thought the book was fantastic in the fact that he went so in depth into scripture. And again, I only pulled a few examples. I, I would suggest picking up the book and reading it. It's not very long. It only took me a couple hours to read it. It, honestly goes into some good detail on, as I had mentioned, some of the uh, historic context of the culture of the day. It also goes into a lot of scripture and brings back around, not just this one verse, but you know, the totality of scripture. What is, what is the direction in the totality of scripture? And it is very obvious all throughout scripture to even the layman that reads the Bible, that women are involved all throughout the scripture. Um, I find it laughable that sometimes I hear some of the names trying to be changed, to make them more masculine. Um, Junia was a woman. Let's just admit it and move on. Um, we don't need to change her name to try and make her sound masculine. Um, Mary Magdalene was very much involved in ministry with Jesus and is, is actually considered apostolic by a lot of people. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, um, but again, We have to take the whole of scripture into into consideration here. We have to look at this subject matter and say that women have value um, more so than just what they can cook and what kids they can take care of. Women are not a threat to men. We're not. And the fact that there are men that feel threatened by women means that they are struggling with themselves. That's just psychology 101. That's completely them not being comfortable in their own skin. I do not ever want to be put into competition with a man. Um, I, I do consider myself a feminist. I do consider myself wanting equality. And I think it's laughable the section I read earlier from John MacArthur. Why shouldn't women be involved in politics? Are we not just as intelligent? Are we not just as able to create policy? Are we able not just as able to screw it up, I mean, honestly, we look at politicians I mean, they all make mistakes women we're we're just as able to do anything that men are able to do, so the fact that we're being left out of ministry is, is somewhat ridiculous and on a more common sense note, there are a lot of people in the world that don't know Christ, and as a Christian, we have been given this this job, right to To spread the gospel. Does it not make sense that you should be allowing women to help you do that? I mean, it's a big world. There's a lot of people. Honestly, how are you going to get to all of them? Why would you limit the resources that you have because of what or what does not hang between somebody's legs? That's ridiculous. And again, it just comes back to saying that we put far too much emphasis on genitals. We need to stop it. We are more than that. We are much more than that. And so, in closing, women are important to ministry and to God. And to say that they're not is short-sighted. And it's, it's demeaning. I don't know how you can say you love the women in your life and then tell them they're not important enough to have a voice. That's not acceptable. And I'm going to take this opportunity right here at the end to say this. If you are one of the people that feels that feminism is dangerous and that it is overtaking society, stop being a part of building it. Every time you come out and make these comments and statements, go home, uh, women belong in the kitchen, "Oh, you can teach the children. All you do is create more and more animosity that builds into this movement of feminism. And I do think there are some areas of feminism that go a little too far, but that's my personal opinion. And I'm not speaking for anybody else there. But every time we go against something from a Christian perspective, we tend to make it bigger. So at this point, we really should start considering maybe all of us being quiet and just praying instead of trying to tell other people how to live their lives. That's my take on John MacArthur situation. Um, yes, it happened to coincide with this book. And so I thought the two went well together. Again, the book is What's With Paul and Women? Unlocking the Cultural Background to First Timothy 2 by Choir Publishing. Um, it was great spending time with you guys, even though it was just me. So go out, have a great day. And thank a woman for something today. Just for a minute. Be thankful to a woman for, some, for something. Anyway, have a great day. Bye, everybody.